Mr. Derek Vienhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. Welcome back, everybody, to the Decast episode 74. I'm here with a two-time guest, Zane Velji, uh, the host of the Strategist podcast, among other titles. Zane, how's it going, man? What's up, man? How are you? Good. Um, could you give us a refresher course on Zane Velji, the man, the myth, the legend? What, uh, what is your background, your accolades, and what have you been up to lately? Oh, man, that's, uh, that's very generous to, to, for you to say that I have accolades. Uh, no, I mean, I think the simplest explanation is a community advocate and, and, and strategist, which, which leads to a couple of things. Um, in, in the professional domain, I'm a partner at a marketing, digital marketing firm called Northweather, where we work with nonprofits and other organizations, particularly around causes, uh, whether it's pushing for advocacy, pushing for, uh, you know, new marketing, new, new strategies to reach out to expand, you know, members, coalitions, et cetera. That's what we, what we kind of do. Um, on the political side, I, I most recently ran the campaign for Calgary Mayor Nahid Menchie in 2017. Uh, and then on that same vein, you know, do the strategist podcast and which kind of tries to dissect strategy of politics in the U.S. as well as here in Canada uh, the particular focus on our in our home province in Alberta, and then kind of do national political commentary every time I, I get the chance. So that's right. probably the best way to describe uh, my background and who I am. And and back in the day, you did work on both Obama campaigns. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, in in, in varying and minor capacities, but that is right. correct. Yeah, like doing, uh, you know, what you'd call basic organizing, which I think is the fundamental building blocks of any campaign. It's the it's the fact of, of being able to reach voters where they are at the doors, on the phones, running virtual town halls. Uh, in that time, in 2012, the concept of a virtual uh, phone bank was relatively new. Right now, it's very common in in, in the political domain with you know, tools like Call Hub, et cetera, where a volunteer on the campaign could sit anywhere and call folks. But back then, because of the technology not being as ubiquitous and such, uh, it was it was part of uh, what the Obama team did. So I, I helped with some of that and uh, at one point was kind of leading parts of that. So uh, in, in a very small uh, geography. So yeah, that's kind of my, been my involvement there as well. So we've just heard from you a little bit about what a strategist is. And if you, if listeners listen to the first episode, which they can go back four years back in the catalog and hear our first conversation if they really want to. Um, but what are some, is there some major misconceptions about what a strategist is or does? Yeah, there are, I think, I think, you know, one of the, the, the funny elements of campaigns, especially if you've been on them for a long time, is that everyone comes in and says, we want to do strategy. We want to run the strategy of the campaign. Uh, you know, any volunteer that comes in, anyone who's kind of had a mythology of what campaigns look like, they've watched the West Wing or they're a big fan of House of Cards or whatever. They, they think that campaign strategy is this uh, grand, uh, you know, overlord style job. And what it often is, is it's uh, setting the direction of the campaign uh, and helping the campaign make decisions on what to do when and then resourcing how to do those decisions. So where it differentiates between a campaign manager who's usually heads down trying to operationalize, the strategist is kind of the person on the team that says, what are we doing? How are we gonna do it? And, um, and then leaves it to the campaign manager and the execution team of uh, you know, perhaps what tools, what resources, 
to kind of execute upon that, right? So it can be as simple as saying, now's a good time in the campaign for us to put out this message. Now's a great time in the campaign for us to do this, to say this, to you know, execute on that, uh, to run a poll here. And it's then a responsibility of the team to kind of execute it. At the end of the day, however, what you realize, especially on the Canadian side of political campaigns, is that often the campaign strategy is very simple. It's usually get more votes. It's usually timetabling out what we want to do. So the role of campaign strategists, while it does exist, is something that that I think people feel like exists in a silo or exists as like this grand overlord thing. But often it's usually devised within two or three decision makers on a campaign. And then everyone kind of steers in the same direction to, to kind of execute. Hmm. Um, I was reading online, I think it was literally just on the Wikipedia page of uh, political strategy. And I, I, I read something about that there is a lot of activists that uh, criticize political strategists in general. Um, but they say it, dis- it destroys the participatory nature uh, of elections. Can, can you explain that to me? Or is that, a, is that a small group of people that feel this way? Or is this a major issue? Well, I think political strategy in a sense has a reputation and a connotation. And that connotation is usually Machiavellian. Um, it's, it's reaching an outcome without considering the cost or the process. It's usually about saying, let's tear anything in our way apart as long as it's as long as it's justified to the ends and that's actually a huge misconception as well which is to say that most political strategists come from a school of community organizing rather than of like you know i don't know what you'd call the alternative but this reputation of machiavellian get all things done at any cost is a rare minority um you need to be opportunistic you need to understand when you can poke your head in, uh, factor in moments. But most political strategists come from uh, the side of organizing rather than the side of kind of uh, manipulation or persuasion. I think that's where it's kind of been given that 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 rap uh, of trying to like subvert, suppress democracy, suppress voters, angle certain participation, boost certain people, suppress. A, I think I think there's elements of that that I think certain people overplay. Right. in terms of their reputation, in terms of what they've done, in terms of how they do what they do. Uh, but most people come from like a pretty like grounded community or organization avenue and say, okay, what I've learned about human nature, what I've learned about people, what I've learned about moments, what I've learned about, you know, inserting yourselves in all of those is X and here's how we can play certain things. So right. it is a chessboard, but it's not like a Machiavellian chessboard that I think many people feel like uh, it, it often is. Sure. Or it may be, it could be in some cases, but not, not uh, in the minority of cases. Right. Yeah. And I think what ends up happening is that, um, there's perhaps a predisposition of how to cover political strategy to begin with. It's to cover it in this like cloak and dagger, black arts, dark arts sort of a manner, right? Which is like, Oh, look at these people behind the curtain. They're unelected. They're unaccountable. They're the ones manipulating your brain, right? Like, you know, many, uh, the example I point to in recent times is Cambridge Analytica uh, and the scandal that they had in the United States about what they were trying to do on Facebook and manipulate certain people. Uh, for anyone who has worth their salt in digital advertising and strategy knows half the shit they were talking about was total BS. It was not true and not possible, but it was just sold in that manner. And the media jumped on it being like, look at these, like, you know, these psychops or, you know, okay. psychological operatives trying to sell certain ideas in a certain way. But right. it's, it's rarely as sold uh, in terms of, of what it looks like in practice. Okay, I was I was sold on that. I think I believe I watched that documentary that went yeah. into detail about that, and I maybe I was uh, duped into 
thinking they were more evil than they were? Or? Well, it's not about more evil. I think the outcomes that they, and the intent that they had was perhaps as evil. But the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the mechanics of what they were actually able to do was definitely oversold. And when you right. oversell the mechanics and the tactics, the media sometimes just jump on that, being like, oh, look, they promised they could do this. They were targeting individuals based on their psychological profiles. Like, that's not possible with yeah. the platform, even with how open it was back in the day in 2015, 2016. That was not possible. So the yeah. fact is that, like, maybe their intent was as, you know, maybe nefarious, but their tactics and their execution of the mechanics were, at certain cases, just not possible in that way. Yeah. Um, speaking of voter suppression that you mentioned, uh, I, I keep hearing about this uh, in the Trump world, this, you know, the, the debate about the mail-in voting and that they, they don't want that to be a thing because of what they call voter fraud. And then the retort to that is that voter fraud is basically null, that it basically never happens to any significant point. Can you talk about that at all? Do you know much about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with the basics of how America votes, which to me is insane. Right. You have a country that has state by state uh, rules on how you register to vote. The fact that you have to register to vote in certain states, that there's registration drives, that there's advocacy organizations set up simply to register voters boggles my mind because you're in Canada. You can literally walk up to the polling clerk and register that same second that you vote. Right. Yeah, it's very it's, easy. It's, yeah. na it's national. Right. It's federal. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the states, it's state by state, 50 states, 50 set, sets of rules. So the fact is, you know, walking up is and, and registering is possible in certain states. It's definitely not possible in other states. And that because of politics being inserted into the simple ability to vote, which we don't have here, uh, allows for the outcomes of saying, oh, nope, we don't have on-site registration. You have to register X days in advance. You have to show Y type of ID which, you know, with the political agenda that certain folks have, especially in the United States with, let's say, Republicans, um, it suppresses and disenfranchises certain blocks of the population who may not have the ability to get to an advanced uh, registration system, may not have certain types of ID, may not be easily accessible on certain phone lists to get registered. So the fact is that what boggles my mind about the states is the fact that there's a lack of a universal system and that politics has been inserted into the simple act of voting. Right. Uh, and not to not to mention the gerrymandering and how big the districts are and right. who's included in each district. I mean, that's also quite insane that politics gets to influence that. Um, if you if you are bored and would love to take a look at some of the wackiest maps in the world, I, I urge you all to Google gerrymandering in the U.S. You will see electoral boundaries that make no, no logical sense. sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they skip over large portions of an inner city or African American or Latino population. They just are, are donuts. They circle suburbs only. And the reason you see that is because uh, politics has influenced the, the not just who gets to vote around ID, registration, etc. It influences who's in a particular geography so that regardless of who gets to vote, it tilts one way or the other. So, so you know, when you bring in mail-in ballots as an additive, it is a symptom of a larger problem that the U.S. has that I think we're slowly starting to recognize as we see primaries in Georgia and Wisconsin during a COVID crisis. Uh, it really exposes the vulnerabilities of the of the U.S. voting system. But that's not to say fraud exists. That's that's actually an extrapolation uh, of, of 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 a problem that that doesn't exist, which Trump is of course trying to beat on.
Right. I, I know I myself was kind of happy when Twitter started to kind of push back on that. Uh, and then I, I know there's many people who disagree with that, with Twitter stance and whatnot. But um, I just, it does irk me when, when you have these, this disinformation that comes out, I mean, from the, the mouthpiece himself. Um, so yeah, the, and I mean, like on the day we're recording here, he put out another tweet. Uh, and I haven't had a chance to see if, if Twitter has, has actually corrected that one, but it's the same same stuff that he said a few weeks ago around uh, fraud and mail-in ballots. Right. So, you know, uh, for those who are going against the platform, they think it's a too little too late. They wish Twitter had done this earlier. They wish Twitter would go further. Uh, but they're doing something, which is, you know, more than you could say about Facebook in some ways. Right. They're taking a little bit of the opposite approach there, I guess, right? Um, so speaking of current events and whatnot, you guys mentioned this a bit on the strategist episode, but... Um, this uh, this rally that Trump had, where they had a million signups, uh, and then they had six thousand or so attendees. No attendees outside, which they thought it was going to be a large group as well. They had people camp out um, to realize then that they didn't need to camp out. Um, yeah. And he did this bizarre tirade about drinking water with one hand and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what? What, if any, strategy is there or, or, or where do you draw the line between campaign strategy and Trump himself and sort of his tweets and, and his tirades? Like, how, how, do, how, do the, how does the Trump team balance those things? Or is this more just speculation than anything? No, no, it's a good point. I mean, in this case, you cannot control the man himself. So what he says on stage, what he tweets out, they should just negate. They should be like, whatever, we can't control that. But where this was a fail was not just him. But this was a fail by the campaign, right? Because when you come out as a campaign and you say that a million people have signed up, you are setting expectations. You're setting expectations of how many people to see, of what the energy will be like. Uh, and, and I have no idea why they did that, why they would broadcast that, why they would advertise that. There was no upside whatsoever, other than if they actually literally had 1.1 million people. Because that's the only upside that you have is when you exceed expectations. Right. So the fact is that they had a 19,000 person arena, 6,000 people came, was, was, was visually, was optically a massive fail. And that's on the organization. That's not on Trump. The fact is that he went out and repeated that information was, was just the fact that he's a very unskilled politician in many regards. And one of the ones was that he saw what his campaign said and he just repeated it and parroted it. Uh, but the fact is that the, the campaign failed to set expectations to stagecraft this rally in a meaningful way. That's not on him. That's on the campaign. Uh, and, and that's on the political organization. I frankly think it speaks to the inexperience uh, of his political organization. And um, you guys mentioned this Brad Pascal, I believe his name is. That's the, is that the campaign manager? Yeah, I mean, the former digital strategy guy for, for, for Trump in 2016, now taking over the campaign. Of course, the myth of the 2016 Trump campaign was that digital was what won them the day. Uh, in certain cases, that's probably correct. Uh, they disproportionately spent on digital. Uh, but now to have him run the entire ops, to have him run field and organizing and advance and the stagecraft shows that, that he's, he's got a very... Uh, perhaps a, 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 a very naive skill around expectation setting and in communications around what uh, offline events need to look like. And, and I have no idea why he tweeted out that the million people would show up, especially now with the, the, the idea that many K-pop fans, many teens and tweens on Twitter uh, and, and, and uh, TikTok were, were, were fake registering en masse to, right. to simply troll the campaign. Yeah. 
right? That's another interesting interesting aspect of it too. These the digital age brings about good and bad. So you have this, you know, people around the world sort of teaming up for different things, whether it's yeah. um yeah. you know, um uh what are those guy fox mask guys, anonymous and things yeah. like that. And yeah. Um so I did did you see the lonely helicopter walk video? I I, I haven't, no. Oh, it's really good. Um just Trump looking very sad walking off of I don't know if it was plane or helicopter. I think they call it the helicopter walk, I guess, but um people are saying that this is the most normal they have ever seen Trump look because he looks like a tired, sad, depressed human with his tie undone. Oh yeah. Yeah. Seen. I saw the picture, but I didn't know the context. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, okay, I guess makes... it was, they're saying that he was so upset about the rally and he, he really did look very distraught, very upset. And it, it was kind of funny and kind of strange. You don't really see him in that. Kind of humanizing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. He, was, he gave a little thumbs up, but he looked really just beaten down. It was kind of interesting, but uh, yeah, maybe you'll, take a look at it and uh, bring it up on the strategist or something <laughs> next time. Yeah, um, totally. Give me credit though. Just show me out. No, totally. Um, so what about the other side of the coin in the States? Biden, what, what, what are the Biden uh, people? What should they be doing? Or what, what do you think they are doing or gearing up to do strategy wise coming up to November? Well, I think, I think what they were doing prior to this, this sort of timeline was trying to make sure their candidate goes viral. And Joe Biden was really poor at doing that, right? Joe Biden's the backslapping type. Um, so for him to be stuck in his basement trying to run a campaign out of a, 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 you know, a TV feed in, in Delaware was not ideal. I think they need to show energy. I think they need to show enthusiasm. I think they need to show contrast. Um, and so where Trump was you know, barely able to get down that ramp, Biden needs to be the contrast. Where Trump is barely able to string together a set of words in poet, poetic fashion, while Biden isn't an expert at that or a master at that at the very least, he needs to be a contrast. So I think this is about showcasing contrast, showcasing leadership, and I think showcasing team. That's one thing that I think Biden would be really well served right now to introduce. Um, why not go ahead as while you introduce your VP pick in the next couple of months, introduce your cabinet. Why not tell people that Cory Booker is going to take this position or Kamala Harris is going to take this position or Pete Buttigieg gets this spot on your cabinet. Why not roll out those folks, use their reflexive credibility, use the energy and enthusiasm that they brought to their respective nomination campaigns uh, and re-energize your party with not just yourself, but you being this, 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 um, this wrangler of great, exceptional democratic talent across the spectrum. And I feel like if I'm them right now, uh, a, la a sad, lonely, uh, irate president versus a candidate who has his own liabilities with age, energy, and let's just be candid, perhaps cognitive functioning, to be surrounded by young, diverse, you know, uh, reflection of America style leaders as his cabinet and VP choice, I think would make for a real interesting um, optical contrast. So that's what I'd be focusing on is how do I introduce these people? How do I get them to take on elements even prior to, to me announcing anything? Uh, it takes a lot of work for the campaign. They'll have to do a lot of vetting, but man, it would make a lot of sense, especially given the moment right now. Right. Um, how does Biden walk the tightrope um, within the political spectrum? to be effective? Like, is there areas of discourse in the public mind right now where he could shift to left for some voting blocks or, or to, 
two, two to the center to some other, like the Bernie group? Or how does he walk that tightrope? Yeah, I, th- I think he has to he has to be in the middle to the center right. I think any chance that he has to go far left, he has to avoid and use other symbols and other ways to try to court that vote. Whether that's bringing Biden, whether sorry, whether that's bringing Bernie or Warren in for a rally, whether that's signaling a certain piece of um, of, of what he might do with his cabinet. But right now, it, it's crystal clear the political math is not going to be one on hard left people showing up. It's going to be built on people that voted for Trump last time flipping over to Biden because Trump is not what they wanted, is not what they want. Um, he has a problem around energy for, for, for the far left group. Will they show up? Um, so he has to walk that tightrope. But I, he has to use surrogates. He has to use other groups to bring those people in. He himself as a candidate needs to walk center to center right, I'd argue, in order to court the real Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida-style voters, even Texas-style voters, to bank those states in play and, and flip over. So any call that he has to go far left, I think he has to avoid and use surrogates um, to re-energize their respective bases, to say, get on board. Um, and perhaps there's many rationales for what getting on board for a Biden presidency looks like. You know, one of the things that's been circulating that I think we should not ignore is that Biden, if he wins, will only be a one-term president. Many people are already saying that. So if I'm a far-left Bernie or Warren, even though I may not be on the ballot in four years for a president, uh, to keep that base of people energized and with Biden this time is really important uh, because I think I think to have the incumbency factor in place for four years and then have someone else replacing Biden that perhaps maybe is more progressive is actually a lot more appetizing than to have a Donald Trump that that ends eight years and then have this open field all over again. So so I think there's something to be said for that. So there's many ways to perhaps engage, mobilize, keep at um, keep at a high temperature uh, this progressive group. But that work does not need to be done by Biden. And sorry, why do they call it, they say he'll be a one-term because of his age or age, because, age, oh, age, okay. age stamina? Yeah. yeah, Biden will be at when he gets sworn, if and when he gets sworn in, will be the oldest president. Will be older than um, Reagan when he left. So Biden will be seventy-eight years old. He'll be older than Reagan when he left at seventy-six. So, so Reagan, Reagan was older than Trump as well. When he left, he was yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, hmm. when yeah. he left, he was yeah. Right. Um, Shifting back to Trump briefly, uh, what, what, again, I guess you already answered this earlier with uh, his tweets are his own and his, his campaign is slightly different. But when he makes statements like uh, during the riots, when he said, you know, when, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, you know, that statement, if you wanted to be charitable to Trump, there's a way to explain it, which is what he tried to defend it with that when the riots start, shooting happens. But other yeah. people interpret it, of course, as, hey, we're going to come shoot you if you start rioting. So yeah. do you think Trump, again, maybe speculation, but do you think Trump thinks that out or does he just tweet and then deal uh, with it? He just tweets tweet? and I think he's racist. So it's right. a combination of those two things. Uh, I think the intent of that statement was what we thought, which is it was you start looting, we'll start shooting. And you being african-americans so you think like he, he was, worded it yeah. in such that like he worded it almost so that he could defend it yes with sure. with the syntax i don't know if he even thinks that far i think yeah. he heard it and he's like this makes sense <laughs> right i okay. think he's a surface level thinker when it relates to that i i wish i could mm. tell you there was more strategy applied to it right but the fact is that the guy standing on his rally stage called the coronavirus the kung flu 
which is yeah. unbelievably racist. I mean, he doesn't think, and he's a racist. So this is what it is, right? He is not going to have nuance to that level of thinking. So, and and he might say he's not a racist, but I, I don't buy it. I mean, it's total right. bullshit. He is, uh, and his actions and his words indicate as such. So I, I don't know if there's necessarily strategy at play other than to say, anyone else who believes those things will get riled up and say the president's with me, but that's a shrinking and shrinking base of people right. as it's starting to seem to be. Yeah. So, do, so do you, does Trump, his, is his only strategy then, so to speak, pandering to the base? And, and is that going to solidify his win? Like, or does he need to, um, you know, like, does he not need to gain some support? Oh, oh he does. Base? On the math, he does. Uh, but he's, you, you, only, you can only play with the cards you have. And right now the cards he has is, uh, more red meat to this ever increasingly divisive Rabid. tribal base. Yeah. And the hope is for him that Republicans, regardless of their nuance of, of what they think about him, get in line. And largely they have 95% support within the Republican party. And so to have the party brand do the rest of the work so that those folks who are more like, let's say a Mitt Romney Republican still show up for the Republicans versus going to Biden. Right. Uh, but that becomes harder and harder when you have groups like the Lincoln Project, which is a group of conservatives, including George Conway, who's Kellyanne Conway's husband and Steve Schmidt, the former campaign manager for John McCain, setting up their own pack as Republicans saying Trump is not right and not fit. We're, you know, we're encouraging all Republicans to vote for Biden. And some of the best pack advertisements have been done by them um, in, in the last little while. Uh, where they go after Brad Parscale, they go after Trump, they go after Trump's inability to walk that ramp, they wide variety of things. Um, so, so it's becoming a harder, you know, math game for Trump. The only thing that perhaps saves him with this strategy is that the progressive side of the, of the Democratic base doesn't show up. They sit on their hands for Biden, that he's not able to generate the energy and enthusiasm. Right. Compounded with the fact that the base that Trump had like 2016, did not register in the polls, did not register on anyone's radar, and they're actually deeper, broader, and bigger than anyone realized, and they showed up in a way that, um, that, that once again, we didn't anticipate. Those right. are the two, like, dominoes to an extreme that Trump needs to, to have um, fall his way in order for this thing to, to be won. Right, so I guess Kellyanne Conway's house is the awkward dinner party, Goodness, and it has been for a long time. I do not understand how that how that couple stays together, but right. it is unbelievable. Um, so, like a typical Canadian, I've talked a lot about America and not a ton about Canada. And um, for people listening, your your podcast with uh, Corey Hogan and Stephen uh, Stephen Carter is called The Strategist, which is. Uh, mostly both North America in general, but I guess you guys are shifting a little more to Canada centric because you're going to have another podcast called you, the people that focuses more on American politics. Is that how it works? That's right. Yeah. So, so you, the people is, is um, still in the works, hopefully, hopefully launching soon, but a podcast directed towards Americans uh, about their political system, but observed by Canadians. Uh, so we're going to talk about thematic items every week, uh, whether that's voting or whether that's rallies or a campaign strategy or campaign infrastructure and compare the U.S. to our experience here in Canada and, and talk about, you know, why we think your the U.S. side is either better or worse and kind of make arguments uh, around each. So so as to draw those comparators, but as to also have fun with it in terms of why these things exist, uh, uh, perhaps in the States and perhaps nowhere else in the world as as the U.S. has 
uh, with its hegemonic exceptionalism tried to, uh, tried to structure. So that's what that podcast is going to be about. But the strategists will still cover U.S. items uh, as, they, as they come up, including the election, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, the dual podcast approach is what we're going with. Yes. Um, so any, any Canadian commentary that you have in your own mind? I know you're mostly the referee on the strategist, so sometimes you don't get to hear Zane Velge's own comments. Uh, but uh, anything of note uh, in your mind with Trudeau and the Huawei stuff? Any, uh, any, anything yeah, floating I think around I, there? I think, I think there's two headlines I'll give you. Number one, COVID is cloud cover. And what I mean by that is it has been an ability for governments, all governments, provincial or federal, to get things done, to move things in a direction that they've wanted to with the cl- cloud cover of COVID, right? The, you know, we know for a long time that the liberals have had an appetite for housing, have had an appetite for universal income, have had an appetite for social policy and social infrastructure. Um, this crisis has been a- allowed them to obviously and necessarily, as a necessity, put that stuff on the table, but do not be surprised if they extend it beyond COVID uh, with the with the cover that we need this as a society going forward, the strengthening of the social debt, uh, social safety net in Canada is something I look out for with the Trudeau government and see what moves that they make there. It's also the same in the provinces. I sit here in Alberta and during COVID, Jason Kenney ran through you know uh, a, a budget, ran through fiscal exercises, ran through the fact that we're selling part of our parks here, privatization. He made a lot of cuts to education. Uh, he still continued his fight with doctors. Uh, it allowed him a distraction while everyone was focused on staying at home, sheltering in place, their own security, as they should. It allowed him to do political things that he always wanted to without the opposition and the distraction and the public awareness on those things. That's first the first headline. Uh, the second headline I give is um, perhaps something I teased with what I think the liberals are going to do, is that I, I would just make a call out and a push that if you are someone right now listening, interested in politics, interested in public service, there is no better time to get involved than now. I genuinely and fundamentally believe that because of COVID, uh, that, that the policies, that the decisions that are going to be made over the course of the next half decade to a decade in all orders of government, whether that's your local city council, whether that's your provincial government, whether that's the federal level, and whether that's political or public service bureaucrat, these are the decisions that are not going to just stay with us for the next 10 years, but perhaps the next 50 to 100 years. I really look at the version, the American version of the New Deal, which was generational policy happening right now in Canada post-COVID. We're going to be talking about big item issues, right? Whether or not we have universal income, whether or not we increase our social safety net, whether or not austerity is a dead form of, uh, of, 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 of civic building, big city building issues at all orders. These are going to be the times. So if you're thinking about public service, I mean, I would jump with two feet right now. Uh, start at whatever level you think is, is appropriate to you. Jump with two feet to volunteer, to get engaged, because honestly, I genuinely believe that these are the times that the biggest decisions of our lifetime uh, is going to be made as an inflection point to when we look back at it, uh, you know, years and decades from now. Interesting. Makes sense. Um, one, you know, one thing I learned, uh, one issue for me as a voter that uh, you guys actually changed my mind on, and I can't fully remember how you guys changed my mind on it, but it's somewhere in the episode 560, something like that. It was about uh, electoral reform. And uh, I had voted NDP a couple times and electoral reform, me and a friend of mine were very strong on that issue. Uh, we weren't happy with the first past the post thing and uh, proportional representation seemed very attractive. And 
I remember you guys broke it down. I don't know if you recall the details at all. Or if you I could don't. Expand on no, it, but you're going to need to have Stephen and Corey on the show. Yeah, I think it maybe was them, but it was something about uh, explaining just the way that a lot of countries are apples and oranges and the population dispersion and the size of the nation and the way that the election works and that it's actually not such a bad deal uh, than that some people think it is. But if, if you don't recall, that's okay. But if... Uh, if you have any thoughts on that. I, I think I think that the overarching summary, I would say, is that uh, the grass is not always green around the other side, but at the same time, like, there is so much nuance to, to, to these voting systems, uh, right? Whether that's that's the ordering, whether that's the ranked balloting, whether that's a mixed uh, system, there's just so much nuance to these systems. So, you know, when the federal government, our federal government, said that they were going to do it and didn't, it, it shows you the complexity. That was a majority government that had all the runway it needed to get it done but it shows you the nuance of these decisions and the ramifications of these decisions going forward. Um, and so I don't see electoral reform entering the zeitgeist anytime here in the next little bit, but don't be surprised if certain provinces try to take a kick at the can as to what their electoral system looks like. But on a federal level, I think, especially if it's a Trudeau government, I think they're not touching that with the 50 foot pole let alone a 10 foot right pole. but he did promise that in the beginning right that was an issue yes he did going to take on. in yeah. 2015 he did yeah and then the end they had to effectively be like hey we can't do this lack of a better term right <laughs> right um that's just something came to mind on that is uh have you yourself uh worked on a on strategy for a group that doesn't quite align with your own personal views and i think i think you may have mentioned i might be mistaken that either Stephen carter or Corey or both of them have done this in the past like worked on different um, sides of the aisle. Uh, oh yeah, that- we all have worked on different sides of the aisle. I think I think we all have worked for different parties. Uh, we've all worked for different causes. Uh, but I think that if I can't speak for them, but I think I can in this situation that for the most part it aligns with our values and ideals at that time. Uh, and and often what I think people misunderstand about politics uh, is the puritanism, the absolutism right? Um, nothing is perfect in politics. It's not a fill in the blank question. It's a multiple choice question. There's it's no solutions, not, only trade-offs. Is that a hundred percent? There's say? no, well, and I even, there's no solutions. There's no, there's no dream party. There's no perfectly aligned party for one. There's right. no custom order. There's no absolutely bespoke political institution. Every single political institution you choose We'll have values alignments and we'll have, we'll have value misalignments. It's your choice as a voter, as a strategist, as a volunteer, say, who do I align with the most and who do I kind of get into bed with proverbially to help kind of shape and make better and, and reflect my own values in, 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 in ways that I care about, right? So I know many people who were conservative supporters who, you know, hated the fact that the party was against LGBTQ issues. Now for them, for me, that is a big enough issue that I would leave that party. But for them, they said it was big enough, but not large enough that they would detract from that party. And you see that everywhere, right? People who love the liberals for how socially progressive they are, but hate that they're so status quo in many ways. Uh, right. With the NDP, people wish that they love their social justice bent. They love that they're the only party in Canada that stands with Palestine, uh, but they're also kind of pissed off that it's, it's not as friendly to business and so absolutist on energy issues, for example. So, I mean, I could list you thousands of iterations of, of, what, of what this trade-off looks like, but it is a trade-off. It's not a perfect solution. I do believe there are solutions. It's just not a perfect one. So you've got to choose based on your values and your alignment at that moment in time. Right. 
Um, lastly, you know, I think we've learned a lot today and I want to thank you again for joining us for the second time. This is a question I'm going to start asking all my guests is what, what podcast do you listen to? Oh, that's a good question. So I, 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 I vary across the board. So on, on politics, um, I'm, I'm mostly listening to stuff in the, in the States. So pod save America is pretty great. Um, on technology, there's a great podcast called pivot, uh, with Scott Galloway, who's a NYU business professor. Uh, and Kara Swisher, where they talk about the, you know, uh, technology. Uh, I, I, I love Dave Chang, the chef. So I listen to the Dave Chang show. And then on sports, it's all about Bill Simmons. So uh, a variety across the board. I, I very rarely listen to fellow Canadian political podcasts, not because I don't appreciate their work, but because, um, because just the, the information overload. And I also don't want to influence our thinking as to where we go with some of our stuff. But um but yeah, it's mainly like sports and comedy and, and, and business related stuff. So yeah. cool. as far as I'm concerned, there's only one Canadian political podcast and that is the strategist. Now there's going to be two with you. Yes. The you, the people. So I, I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Thanks again, Zane. And uh, all the best, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Take care. Take care.